Planning a wedding can be intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customized suit right from home. With dozens of high thread count fabrics, patterns, and colors to choose from, Indochino lets you fine-tune every detail and design a suit tailored perfectly to your body and your personality. Set up your measurement profile on Indochino's website and choose fabric and customizations without leaving the house. Or book a showroom appointment and let Indochino's dedicated style guides help you and your wedding party look flawless for the big day. Their experts have been dressing grooms and groomsmen since 2007. And with suits starting at just $4.99 and fitted shirts at $89, Indochino is bespoke without the premium price tag. Get a wedding suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code PODCAST to get 10% off any purchase of $3.99 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code PODCAST. Hey everybody! Welcome to Big Blend Radio's first Monday. Well, our first Monday show is always about military history, and that means we have military Mike Guardia with us. Uh, Mike is an amazing author. He has written so many books. How many? How many books now, Mike? Twenty-one. Oh my wow. gosh! Oh my gosh! We should throw a party. <laughs> you got to twenty-one, wow. yeah. dude. Seriously, um, award-winning author, military historian, U.S. Mm-hmm. Army veteran. 21 books. I uh, always want to give a That's shout out to uh, Hal Moore, A Soldier Once and Always. Um, and, you know, we always talk about that book. Uh, it, it's just, it's, that's pretty much what really got you started, right? It was that book that kind of led the platform to 21. Well, yeah, it was one of the first books that I wrote. And uh, yeah, I mean, even before I finished that project on Hal Moore, you know, I knew that uh, I had a, uh, I knew that I had a lot of stories in me that I wanted to tell, and I knew that I had just caught the bug really bad, and I wanted to just keep on writing for as long as the stories kept coming to me. Right on. And the latest one is all about Paul F. Gorman, uh, four-star general. It's called Danger Forward. So we just did that interview, and everyone, you can check that up on uh, Mm blendradioandtv.com. And uh, well, just go to mikewardia.com, right? best place yeah <laughs> go there and uh also on amazon is a good place to go and get mike's books but today uh mike we're going to touch on two books that we've talked about before fox bat tales and yeah. also american mm-hmm. armor in the pacific so you know being january this is our january show you wanted to kind of right. touch on what had happened in december uh go right. from mm-hmm. world war ii to afghanistan like we're yeah. gonna do a big jump right um right. Pretty wide from, stretch. From yeah. tanks to MiG-25, am I right? Uh-huh. Correct. <laughs> okay. Mm. All right. So, and actually, what's interesting today is actually we're recording on the date of uh, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, right, today? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And it's uh, when you think about what happened there, um, Nancy says it's a giant sneak attack, what happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. But it, Very tragic. It, 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 yeah, and I still wonder, because uh, I've read so many historic novels, mm-hmm. and there are indications that some people knew but didn't tell, and I'm not sure, but I don't know, just, 
somebody must have known something at some point. Don't you think? Well, I think a lot of us had an inkling that we were going to fight the Japanese eventually, but Mm -hmm. we didn't really expect the sneak attack to happen when it did. And we didn't expect it to happen to the magnitude that it did. Um, Mm. You know, there were a lot of rumblings uh, within the intelligence community and uh, within the immediate community of the Pacific fleet uh, that were preparing for a potential showdown against Japan. But there were uh, a few overriding bits of conventional wisdom that kept people thinking that, you know, if Japan does attack, they're not going to last very long. uh, Mm -hmm. And that if they are going to attack, they're going to probably attack the Philippines before they would ever even dream of attacking the Pacific fleet of Pearl Harbor. Uh, One of the things that I touched on when I wrote American Armor in the Pacific um, was, you know, trying to give the reader a setup into how the Pacific War against Japan started. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the prominent admirals at the time uh, was having a conversation with his opposing number in Japan uh, before the war even started. Mm -hmm. And he told him words to the effect of, look, if you guys ever were to go to war against us, you know, you might have your initial successes, but you don't have the manpower and you don't have the Mm -hmm. wherewithal to sustain a protracted naval war against the United States. So, you know, let's avoid the problem before it even gets off the ground. Hey folks, don't do anything dumb. Don't even think about going to war against us because, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to end well for you. And that really factored into a lot of the Japanese's operational calculus because they were telling themselves, Mm -hmm. well, look, if we look, at our comparative strength on paper, yeah, they're 99% right that if we do start a war in the Pacific against the U.S. Navy, it's probably not going to end well for us. So what do we have to do in order to make sure that the Navy can't fight back if we do start a war against them? Well, the only real option we have at this point is to try and take out the entire Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. Because mm. if we can get the battleships and we can get the cruisers and we can get the destroyers and particularly the aircraft carriers, mm-hmm. take out everything in one fell swoop at Pearl Harbor, then it will cripple the U.S. Navy's ability to conduct war throughout the Pacific and they'll sue for peace on our terms. So we're going to put all of our eggs in one basket. And if we succeed mm-hmm. in the attack on Pearl Harbor, that's the only way that we're going to pull this off. Mm. So. Uh, You know, the prevailing wisdom then uh, from the Japanese side of the house was, okay. if we're going to do it, we have to make the first strike and we have to do it intensely enough to where they can't fight back. And the Americans were telling themselves, well, they don't have the capacity to steam a naval task force all the way from Tokyo to Pearl Harbor. And uh, they certainly don't have the technical know how they don't have the uh, they don't have the uh, uh, the same war fighting capabilities that we do in order to pull that off. So when you take those two competing ideas and you put them within the same environment, you know, you have the perfect storm for what is going to be a surprise attack that Mm. on our side, we never saw coming. And uh, on their side, they're saying, okay, if we're going to do this, we have to do it right in one try, because if we miss and if we don't accomplish 100 percent of our objectives in the first strike, that's it. It's Mm. only a matter of time before our days are numbered. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And uh, I, I think the uh, hmm. I think the tinge of defeat was felt in 
the immediate aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attack because because uh, Admiral Yamamoto went on record to say, okay, we didn't get the carriers. Guys, that was a huge, huge mistake. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, the carrier groups, they were out at sea. They were doing their own maneuvers. So we got the battleships and we got the cruisers, but by God, we didn't get the aircraft carriers. That's really going to spell trouble for us. And mm. he also said, I feel that all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant yeah. and fill him with a terrible resolve. Yeah, um, they poked uh, the monster. <laughs> they did. They did. And he <laughs> said, look, you know, at, a, he said at, at worst, we got six months at best, mm. probably two years. And, uh, you know, that that assumption really bore out correctly, because if you fast forward the clock to mm. the end of 1943 and the beginning of 1944, I mean, the end was clearly in sight for the Empire of Japan by that wow. point. And so, uh, yeah. I, I need to back up. I need to back up a little bit because I wasn't there and, and I got to get my date, my dates right. So at that time, so was it Pearl Harbor that. And sorry, everybody, I know people are going to go, oh, that's a stupid question. It's okay. I'm, I'm all fine with that. Um, so was that what spurred on the whole internment camps um, when, when everybody, you know, because I know that we've done interviews and I'm just trying to get my head straight, mm-hmm. right. um, where, you know, the whole coastline of California and even the Central Valley. I mean, we've been on farmers' right. properties and they have watchtowers mm-hmm. in the Watch middle towers. of Orange Grove in the Central Valley. In the right. Central Valley, and obviously, you know, mm-hmm. got Manzanar and everything back then. Mm-hmm. So, was it after Pearl Harbor that that sprung up, or was it before yes. Pearl Harbor? So mm-hmm. that's what started it. Right. Was that event? Because the way you just mm-hmm. explained it to me was, and and to our audience, obviously too, just totally hit home of understanding a little bit mm-hmm. better about. Well, you're you're a good teacher, man. <laughs> of, oh, of how it all happened. <laughs> no, because I mean, it's it's interesting how they did it and. Um, you know, just a few days ago, and everyone, sorry, we're recording this in December for January, but um, it was the anniversary of uh, the Valor mm-hmm. Pacific National Memorial and Monument that we have that goes into Alaska, Japan, and, and different sites mm-hmm. across the country. And I put up a photo from one of our travel writers, Debbie Stone, who went to Oahu, and she went to the memorial in Pearl Harbor, and mm-hmm. I put up a photo on Instagram about it, and she has like a photo looking down at battleship row and i was just looking at this knowing we're going to do this Mm -hmm. interview and i was like oh my god i can Mm -hmm. totally see how the harbor was set up with all these ships in there i mean like battleships i mean like it really hit home to me how they could target that i mean have you been there because i have you i know you've written a book on hawaii a christmas book on hawaii (laughs) (laughs) not yet Okay. I'll okay, send you that photo. Why, do you do you know why we were clustered all around Pearl Harbor? Was there right. a reason for that? Right. So the reason for that was they wanted to bunch our planes close together to make them easier easier to protect on the ground. Uh, because the prevailing wisdom was is that if there is going to be a threat in Hawaii, it's going to come from spies and saboteurs on the ground. Uh, they were telling oh. themselves, okay, distance here is really going to be our ally. It's distance here uh, that wow. makes us safe from any long-range seaborne attack. And Pearl Harbor itself is too shallow for a, a, a traditional torpedo attack. Um, 
Hmm. So those two, those two, uh, those two wow. ideas together uh, precipitated all of the uh, precipitated all of the planes at uh, places like Hickam and Wheeler to to be bunched together and you know to say okay well if we have a sentry who's on a uh, who's on a roving guard he'll be able to uh, he'll be able to to scare off any spies or saboteurs because the last thing we expect is an attack from the third dimension because the Japanese can't fly that far. And even if they could, well, you know, I mean, if they want to drop a torpedo in Pearl Harbor, it, it's too shallow. It's not going to uh, float on its own. But the Japanese, clever as they were, uh, got, got around that by attaching wooden fins to the back of their torpedoes, which made them more buoyant and able to sail through the water oh. at the shallower depths. Wow. Wow. Okay. This is interesting, wow. too. Just even going through all wow. your stories with like Paul Gorman, Hal Moore, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've all these stories. It seems to me that a lot of the, the the generals that you know really changed things up right. didn't have this idea of underestimating the enemy. It seems like like Paul Gorman, Helmore, they looked at the enemy and went, "We need to be doubled down and right. expect mm-hmm. the worst." Whereas when you're talking about Pearl Harbor, we underestimated the enemy. Correct. And it mm-hmm. seems that, yeah. that that happens a bit. And, and that's I, a good but that's a good lesson for all of us in business yeah. and in you know, don't underestimate mm-hmm. because whenever you sleep, someone's gonna get you. That's how criminals work. No, but <laughs> I don't I don't, don't even think of cars. They do it every day, <laughs> you know. I don't I don't I don't know that that they actually back then took the Japanese really seriously. I mean, they knew they were a threat, but I think that they didn't take them as seriously as they took the Germans or other countries that involved. I don't think they, I think they were all focused on on the Nazis and not on the rest of it, maybe. What do you think? Right. So, you know, the the prevailing wisdom at the time was that if a threat was going to materialize, it was going to come from Nazi Germany long before Mm -hmm. it ever came from the Empire of Japan. Now, uh, what membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better. You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part? It's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, get up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost on the Gambit DC app, online, or at any Gambit DC retail location throughout the district. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please buy responsibly. I think influenced that was the fact that we took a look at what was happening in Europe and we saw how quickly and how effectively the Blitzkrieg was executed. Yeah. And we said to ourselves, okay, wow, you know, he buried Europe yeah. uh, within big time a matter of months. 
and mm-hmm. you know and and if not for the bravery of the RAS that he probably would have buried Britain as well mm-hmm. and then we took a look at what was happening in the Pacific and we say okay well the Japanese and the Chinese have been going at it for as long as those two kingdoms have existed you know uh mm-hmm. wars between a lot of the Asiatic states uh have 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 been a uh, have been a recurring theme throughout history so there's nothing really new there and mm-hmm. we certainly knew what the Japanese were capable of. We knew that they were fierce fighters. We knew about the atrocities that they had committed on mainland China, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, particularly um, particularly the, the uh, brutal occupation of Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we said, OK, well, you know, when we take a look at the two armies comparative capabilities, there's little question in our mind that the Germans have a much more technologically superior force and they right. also have stronger tactical bearings than, mm. than what the Japanese have, uh, have, have demonstrated to us. You know, we, t- we, and we, we take all these data points in from the battles that they've not only fought against the Chinese, but the battles that they fought against the Soviets. Mm. So yeah, they are a, they are a decently equipped enemy and we know mm. that, uh, that they have a fighting spirit, but you know, when you, uh, when you put these two opposing forces together, we were telling ourselves, you know, there's uh, there's very little likelihood, as far as we can see, that they can defeat us in a contest of open fire. Now, hmm. you know, in the early months of World War II, we found out that that assumption really didn't hold true, and that yeah. we, you know, and that we had to we had to double down on how we were approaching this conflict in order to in, in order to achieve victory. But uh, you know, victory was ultimately ours, and it was a Hard fought and very oh, well yeah. victory, I think. It, you know, and there's also the, the other thing, like the uh, kamikazes, you know, like the mm-hmm. um, do or die kind right. of attitude, which I think is um, that that's different. That but now I we mean, look at what, but now we have suicide bombers. What's the difference? Yeah, I right. mean, yeah, that that's kind of a different take from the Western culture that is kind of um, weighs in heavier than maybe we thought it would. Right. Did we, did we know like that the kamikazes would um, instead of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go shoot you over here, bomb me over there, but I'm also going to land myself in this plane safely. Mm-hmm. Or am I just going to fly my plane right into a target? You know, right. it's two different mindsets. And I always wonder about that. Like, okay, so um, I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to put yourself in the mind of a kamikaze pilot. Correct. Yeah. You and know, that was I, really one of the things that took us by surprise. It was something that yeah, we hadn't really counted weird. on. But, mm-hmm. but we found out very quickly that at least at the time, the Japanese uh, did not have the same respect for human life that we did. You know, I mean, yeah, granted, yeah. war is never going to be something that's civil. It's always going to be mm. something that's tragic and it's always going to involve a yeah. great deal in the Pain. loss of human life. But, uh, you know, they really didn't have the same outlook on human life that we had. You know, for them, mm. it was completely acceptable to give planes only enough fuel to make it to the target, but not come back. And it was expected that, yeah, hey, see. once you get to a low level of fuel, you're going to ram your plane into the nearest American yeah. target uh, uh, um, uh, that you can find. And, you know, you see this attitude reflected in a lot of the dogfights that are mm. 
American pilots have recounted. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you one story by way of example. Um, in an upcoming book that I'm doing, The Combat Diaries, mm. I, I, I talk about a particular, um, talk about a, a particular Navy pilot who, who flew at Midway. He was, a, uh, he was a dauntless dive bomber pilot. And he said one of the things that he really couldn't shake was the fact that even after an American plane had been downed and the pilot had bailed out and his parachute and canopy was floating down to the surface of the sea, that, that, that a lot of the Japanese zeros would swoop in and they would vector onto the pilot as his parachute was descending and they would no shoot way. their guns at him oh. because, because he said to them, it wasn't simply about trying. It wasn't simply about trying to down an American plane. They wanted to see American airmen bleed, and they wanted to see them suffer. Wow! To them, it wow. was a deeply, uh, it, it was a wow. deeply personal affair, and one that they hmm. really felt had to end in bloodshed. That if they let, uh, that if they let a downed aviator escape alive, that they were somehow dishonoring the the cause of the war. Wow! wow. And and you know, to huh. make matters worse. Uh, I, I think an even more heartbreaking story uh, comes from one of the veterans um, who told me about what the Japanese civilians were doing on islands like Saipan and everywhere else that you had Japanese settlers throughout the Pacific. They said that when they knew that the American task force was coming into the shores, a lot of them committed suicide because they were wow. afraid of what the Americans might do to them. But you take it to an unhealthy extreme when yeah. you not only commit suicide, but you're also proactively killing your wife and your children because wow. you don't want them to encounter the Americans. And, you know, there was wow. one story that I heard about a pregnant woman, hmm. okay, a pregnant woman who was only, I, I swear, she was only minutes away from giving birth, threw herself off a cliff and drowned herself and her unborn wow. child just because she was afraid that hmm. the Americans would do to them what the, the Japanese had done to yes. everyone else that they had conquered. Isn't that weird? Wow. Like, isn't that how yeah. we are as, as human beings though? The, yeah. the more we are like, it's crazy. Oh, so the, the worst mm -hmm. thing that we'll think about mm. people goes about right. like, what have you done? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we have exactly. that weird mirror, don't we? Uh, that's, that's, right. and that's really <laughs> sad because then it's also part of it. That's weird. It's, it's, it, it's another, it's like a form of brainwashing. It is I don't a, want to it's say a different that, but kind, you know what it, I mean? It's totally a different way of thinking that we right. have a problem relating to. Mm -hmm. I think I wondered about um, Japan joining up with the Germans. You know, I keep thinking in the back of my mind, I always thought, well, okay, let's just say the other side won. How long would it be before the Germans took the Japanese out? Because you right. know, in a way, that's going to, with Hitler's mentality, yeah. that I think he, he wanted that. Wanted to, oh yeah, he he wanted to rule the world, so he may use the Japanese and others to help him mm -hmm. here. But wouldn't he have turned on them at some point? I really, oh, I'm I really, of it. yeah, that's what I think, and I don't uh, understand why they didn't see that coming. It's, it's you know, would they? Did did they not even consider it, like, or maybe they thought they could take him out too? Well, you know the I 
I got to say the alliance between Germany and Japan, it was largely a marriage of convenience. Um, mm. You had both sides of that alliance who were convinced that they were God's gift to humanity and that they were an invincible race of people and that no one could mm. ever challenge the, mm. let's say no one could ever challenge the superiority that they had that you know it wow. was written in the stars and that it was written in the universe that wow. that they and only they mm-hmm. were the best people on the planet and that eventually things would go in, mm-hmm. in their favor you know so whether so, so whether uh, the Japanese were thinking they would eventually overtake uh, the whites or whether mm-hmm. it was Germany thinking that they would spread the gospel of all things Aryan to mm-hmm. the four corners of the earth. You know, they, they each thought that they were the biggest, baddest kids on the block and that their way was the only way to enlightenment. And, you know, I think back to a lot of the early Japanese propaganda mm. that was hot and heavy throughout the war. And one of the things that uh, they were telling their own people, no less, one of the things the Japanese were telling their own people is that we have to defend ourselves against the white imperialist dogs. They said, we have to keep our, we have to keep uh, Asia for the Asiatics. That was another one of their uh, mottos. And they also mm-hmm. said, we have to, we have to defend ourselves against what they called the A, B, C, D encirclement. American, we also have British, Chinese, and Dutch. ABCD encirclement. And when we defend ourselves from the ABCD encirclement, you know, we will show the world that, you know, the Japanese are the one true master race of the planet. Wow. So what, where so does China, where is, wait a minute, is, the Chinese no. are an Asian? <laughs> no, no, because that's a whole other thing because yeah, you know what I mean? So it's, what about in the middle of all of this, uh, you know, the Soviets, like this is to me, I look at the way Russia has been as well, that, they also feel that there's, I mean, isn't that why wars happen? Everyone feels they're supreme, you know, well, and, and, well, and imperialism yeah. too. that word. I find well, it interesting. Defense. You have to forget. You don't forget. You yeah. Have to defend. Defense. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Of yeah. course. But the Soviets to me, like that kind of goes with them too, in a way. And then what about Italy? Like Mussolini, what sparked right. him off? Yeah. Like here it is. And you think about how close in Hitler Hitler and Mussolini were like right around yeah. that same time frame. Like, right. what the heck was going on? Like, did it was everybody fighting over who had the biggest, baddest cigar or what? Like, <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Like, they, okay, yeah. well, come on, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I just it it would never have ended if if right. the Americans had lost World mm-hmm. War Two would still be going on because then the people like the Germans and the Japanese and people who joined that side would start fighting each other. It, it, it would still be going on. I just find Russia being out there fascinating. So close to Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's oh, yeah. weird. Yeah. Sorry. I just, I want to, I want to go from, so you've got world war two to Afghanistan. So there are mm-hmm. some yeah. similarities in a way, right. You know, you're talking about, and I want to go back to tanks too, but let's let's okay. let's hop, let's hop. And that and sure. that was Nancy's initial thing was <laughs> tank hopping on the islands, right? That was her <laughs> big thing, and yeah. I want to know about that too. But one thing you said was about cultures; these cultures being completely different to what Americans knew, different to right. what the British knew, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Afghanistan, 
isn't that the same thing when we're going in into the Middle East? These right. cultures are night and day different than what we understand. Isn't mm-hmm. that part of the problem of winning and also trying to rebuild? Right. And that is really what makes it so hard. And that, I think, is where the war effort kind of went off base when, mm. we, when we were in Afghanistan. Because I think, the, uh, I, I think in hindsight, the objective should have always been to, to destroy the Taliban, also destroy al-Qaeda, and more mm. to the point, kill or capture Osama bin Laden. Right. I think where we went wrong was thinking that if we engaged in nation building, that it would be a viable enterprise, particularly in a culture, mm-hmm. in a part of the world that has no tradition of democracy to speak of. And yeah. you know, where, where the culture and where all of the cultural foundations are so incompatible with what we perceive to be representative democracy, I just think that it was a, it was a doomed enterprise from the beginning. Wow. From that, the very no, beginning. That's, but yeah. that's wow. really interesting. I mean, having lived in different parts of Africa in the bush and being in contact with different tribe, tribes and their traditions and uh, seeing how different they live, okay, mm-hmm. but more especially what they believe and um, how they think. You, you know, I, you can't, unless you really go in deep and spend a lot of time, and I'm talking years, living within different cultures, you really don't know how they think. You can mm-hmm. guess, but you always think they're going to think the way you do. And it, it it isn't true. They really don't think the same. And there's no wrong or right about it. It's right. just different. So, right. And it's according to their in, land, it, too. Yeah. And, and you know, so the one thing, the biggest lesson I learned in living in Kenya in the bush was even tribes next to each other who were fighting each other, you, I looked at him like, well, why are you guys fighting? You're the same. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're not the same. Mm-hmm. And they think totally different. And they, right. they all thought totally different than I would think as an American. And they talk totally different than the British who occupied that country for a while and, and colonized it. So everybody thinking totally different and it's not really surprising to me that people fight because they're so sure that their way is the right way you know there's not that um, space for okay you think this I think that so uh, go ahead, think your way. I'll think my way. That's diplomacy. Let's not hurt each other. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's let's just not fight over it or argue over it or or hurt each other over it. But then you introduce land boundaries and money and things like that, and things go wrong. Now, that's what you, what Kenya was really interesting because I would talk to different people and. Uh, walk away going, wow, I got to wrap my head around how they think. Because what they thought was okay was so foreign to anything I would have thought they would think was okay. Because what I think is okay is different than what they think is okay. 
and I'm sure it's, you know, as time goes on, I'm talking, you know, years ago, it maybe has changed. Maybe not. I don't really know. And what's right. Really... It, what is it? Yeah. What's right? Is, is Americanizing? I mean, when you think about Afghanistan, are we in a weird way colonizing too? Well, there's customs there, you know, especially when you're talking about women and the young girls and how they're um, made to marry older guys and um, all the their traditions. And yet, um, the young girls were excited about it because it was presented to them as an honor. Mm. Now, from my standpoint, I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah. You know, nice. so you, it's, it, it's just, it mind-boggling so and then i can see how wars would start because we would think as a western culture this is cruel this is wrong they're under age i shouldn't be going through this and they're all like excited and happy about it not all of them but most of them because and there are things that are not humanely good honestly yeah so it's just i can so i can only yeah afghanistan and just going in and yeah I can also understand people wanting to help. I mean, isn't that part of it too? Just wanting to help thinking, just being there that help rebuild, be safe, you know? Um, But it's got to be different going in. Like the African countries is more colonial and everything. And I mean, Asia is colonized. I mean, Mexico is every, I mean, South everywhere has been colonized in some way. Right. But it's it's interesting going in mm-hmm. during a fighting part of things and then sitting there and helping to redevelop. Would you say it is kind of colonizing in a way or no? Well, no, I, I won't say that we had any colonial ambitions yeah. in Afghanistan. Mm-mm. I mean, really, it was just, uh, you know, we we went in there and the the prevailing notion at the time was that if we could build a stable democracy, it would prevent the conditions that allowed Al Qaeda and the Taliban to flourish. And we thought that if we could do that, um, then it would negate the possibility of us ever having to go back there again. Mm. You know, I'll say this, and I know it's probably not a particularly popular point of view, but, you know, I think how you ultimately win these wars and how you prevent the conditions that would precipitate going back there again Mm. is that you enter, you fight, you trash, and you make the enemy feel defeated to the point where he gives up and you make it very clear to him before you leave that said, okay, you did this that made me come over here the first time. Don't even think about making trouble for me again, or we're going to do this whole thing all over again. Rinse, wash, repeat. Yeah. And, you know, and nine times out of 10, I mean, history bears that out that, hey, that is mm-hmm. enough to establish the lasting peace. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, you go over there, you make the enemy feel defeated and mm-hmm. you, you leave some type of cyclic reminder that says, hey, don't get the bright idea to make trouble for me again or we're yeah. going to come back. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if when I got that into trouble, Nancy said, you've sense. got three things, you know, I'll give you three chances if you do this again. You know, you're going to get in trouble. I swear to God, I tested every single time and I got in trouble. Yeah. And if she didn't enforce, I had she said, to... I'm going to enforce. Yeah. Then where mm-hmm. would she be as a parent? Right. You know what I mean? You can't be. No, I, it's, it's sometimes I'm not saying parenting and military is the same, but in a way me. it is. It's like you've no, got to right. follow up on don't, what you say. You know, if you don't, then you lose. 
Yeah. You have to. And, for for many when, years. For many years. Yeah, and, and she pushed and pushed <laughs> and I pushed. I kept saying, you know what? And I you still got will. one more chance. And then she'd do it. And I'm like, then I'm like, oh gosh, darn. She put me in that situation where I had to do what I told her I was going to do. She didn't do anything bad, but she did chase me around with a frying pan once (laughs) (laughs) in the garden. (laughs) It was just, it was perfect for everyone. It's like, no, no, I told you. And she chased me and I told her I would run and I did. So it was a good workout, but, but I think that, that I I agree with you. (laughs) It's, you know, and I think the Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, it sounded, sounds right to Mm do. It sounds like a good idea. You know, but um, let's go into so there are different cultures, so it doesn't always work. Yeah. I think it's sad how things have transpired this year, or I should say 2021, and how, mm. you know, I just think it's a it was a little bit of a not a little bit of a, a hot mess. Um, mm. And sad. I mean, these are people's lives right. on all on all levels on all on mm-hmm. everyone can, you know, in the contractors. That's something we never talk about is the contractors that are involved also get hurt right? and their families, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's something too. And we saw that with Afghanistan yep. that they got, you know, kind of shafted in a way um, coming back, but with Hawaii, mm-hmm. you have these tanks and I know we want to touch on Fox bat tails. Okay. You've got the MIGs, the MIG 25s. Correct. So mm-hmm. this brings in my Russian. <laughs> See, this I'm very fascinated. I, you know what? I'm going to line up all your books one day and go. Okay, I feel like next time we talk, we need to have a globe here, like in a timeline. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. because That'd it be just cool. seems like how. And I know we've brought this up on shows. How are okay? So it's armor for the ground, aircraft mm-hmm. for the air, obviously. But how are we having not just us? But how are like aircraft going from to the enemy to the enemy? And to how are ev- everyone selling each other their <laughs> aircraft and their armor? Like it's like why would why? <laughs> I mean, I get it. There's money, but I mean, right? It's like don't you want to hold on to all your like? I would be like a squirrel putting all my ammunition aside and never getting rid of it just in case the big one came. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right. Maybe it'll blow everybody up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just saying. I want all my stuff. I'm never going to give it to the enemy just for a few bucks. Hell no. I'm just mm-hmm. saying. <laughs> I'm keeping all my aircraft <laughs> and my tanks, but I don't have any. Uh, okay. So yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that. Um, yeah, it's been a long-standing practice since the 20th century um, to, you know, to have what's called FMS uh, for foreign military sales. And mm. what we do is we, you know, is, is we take any number of our allies out there and we say, okay, if we determine this person to be a reliable ally, uh, then in the spirit of maintaining a good diplomatic relationship with this ally, we are going mm-hmm. to, we are going to sell them some of our home-built military equipment and we will give this to them for the benefit of being able to defend their homeland and also mm. uh, and also in a sense perpetuate the two-way traffic between our, our, our two countries so that they uh, not only have this American-built piece of equipment 
to defend their homeland, but they also, you know, they also employ a, um, you know, a carousel of uh, these American contractors, uh, American mm-hmm. service personnel to help ensure the proficiency of that homegrown military, you know, to hmm. effectively use this, uh, to effectively use this piece of machinery that we've sold to them. So, mm. you know, and it works, it works very well in maintaining those ties of friendship. Uh, the only thing that you do mm-hmm. in, in, in the sense of taking a gamble when you do that is you, you don't really know if that friendship is still going to be there in five years. You don't know if that yeah, friendship exactly. is, is still going to be there mm. in 10 years. You know, um, I think, uh, you know, if we take a look at some of the allies that we've sold military equipment to, you know, I think that we can count on the Israelis being a reliable mm-hmm. ally, you know, which is right. why we've given them the F-15 and mm-hmm. th- th- that, okay. th- that's why we've also sold them the F-16. You know, I think that we can also uh, rely, we, we can, we can, we can have a longstanding relationship with the British mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, we've not only, we've not only given them equipment in the past, but uh, they also sold us the rights to manufacture our own copy of the Harrier jet, which mm. was based in Britain. Um, but, you know, we've also made a few blunders in the sense that we gave the F-14 to Iran. And that yeah. was, Oopsie. yeah, yes. And that was during the reign of the Shah. And this, mm. of course, was back at the time when Iran was our closest ally in the Middle East. But fast forward mm. just five or six years later, after we gave the initial batch of F-14s to Iran, well, surprise, surprise, mm, you have yeah, the Ayatollah Khomeini take over, and mm. they are now, they've now been a sworn enemy for, 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 yeah. for, for the better part of yeah. like almost 50 years now. So yeah, yeah it just, uh, yeah, it, it uh, you take a very big mm. gamble when you do that. Mm. Yeah. So mm. the MiG-25s, these were supposed to be heavy, like non-moving machines, basically, and Tell us a little bit about them because they they were Russian, right? Right. Yeah. Or so Soviet, it, I should say. It was really designed to do one thing. It was designed to be very, very fast. Um, it was not suited at all to be a dogfighter. And mm. uh, the Russians, uh, initially, they kept a very close hold on the aircraft. Um, for the first few years of existence, um, it was uh, it was lent very sparsely to the uh, to the countries that the Soviets deemed to be allies. And, uh, you know, it, its first big operational debut was in the Middle East um, in the mm. er, er, early 70s, in particular mm. the Yom Kippur War. But uh, the Soviets, uh-huh. when when they when they deployed their their MiG-25 units uh, to the Middle East, you know, to Egypt specifically, they said, OK, we're going to let you guys use these for your benefit, but you are not getting operational control of any of them. Mm. They said, you know, they are going to be, they're going to be under Soviet control. They're going to be flown by Soviet pilots. And uh, you are never going to see a, uh, you Mm. are never going to see an Egyptian pilot strapped into the cockpit of one of these, because, you know, even though we're helping you out, by God, this is our plane. We're going to decide what we do with it and we're going to decide how it's going to be used. Hmm. And it hmm. wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until a few years after the Yom Kippur war that, you know, the Soviets finally started to, when they started to relax a, 
a lot of their regulations on the plane and say, okay, well, you know, we can, we can expand the, uh, you know, expand the parameters of our, our, our export industry. Wow. So uh, this, hmm. I, I agree with them on that though, about the very beginning going, mm-hmm. we're, if we're going to help you, we're running our own plane. It's like, I'm mm-hmm. not going to give my car to somebody who's going to go to race drive. it. If, you know, right. if, if anyone's <laughs> going to race my car, it's me and I will win. <laughs> but, oh, hello. I'm just saying, but no, no, no. But, but, um, so this is where this plane, how does it end up in Afghanistan? All righty. So if we wind the clocks back to December of 1979. Uh, you had the rise of the communist government in Afghanistan, and it was in the wake of that communist revolution that you also had the rise of the Mujahideen. And what happened was that in the latter part of 1979, you know, the, the communist Afghan government was having trouble fighting its own counterinsurgency against the Mujahideen, against all the various, you know, anti-communist factions that were, uh, you know, trying to uh, try and trying to mm-hmm. counter the communist government there, that they asked the Soviets for help. And, you know, of course, because it's a uh, it's a communist enclave that is right on the southern border of the Soviet Union, wow. they were more than happy to uh, send military assistance there. Mm. So the Soviet invasion, as it is, ha- happens in ha- happens in December of 1979. And it was during that uh, inaugural year of the conflict, 1979-1980, that you see the first MiG-25 deployments there. And its mm. operational use within Afghanistan was within the realm of it being a reconnaissance jet. Because, you know, the Afghan, hmm. uh, b- both the Afghan Air Force and, uh, of course, the Mujahideen, they didn't really have the capability to, uh, you know, conduct a protracted air war there. So what did you have all of our top-notch interceptors and fighters doing? You had them many times either performing ground attack missions or, in the case of the MiG-25, uh, performing these uh, high-level, uh, high-level reconnaissance missions. And that is that is uh, what the MiG-25 did for its uh, brief tour of duty uh, in Afghanistan. Wow. And in that capacity, it proved to be incredibly effective. But the uh, pilots mm. who came back from that deployment said, you know, it uh, was weird. It was surreal doing all these uh, photographic reconnaissance missions over the Afghan countryside, because if you look down there, you can see that there is not a single human being for miles. And if heaven forbid, I had to ditch out of my plane for any reason at all, by God, I would not want to bail out over this godforsaken country wow. because, you know, who knows hmm. if anyone would ever find me again. Wow. 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 So, huh. but at the same time, you still had hmm. tanks there too, right? Correct. Eventually. Yeah. So this hmm. air and, and ground when, when, you know, things like, okay, the MiG's going over there, tanks. I know Nancy wanted to talk about the island hopping. Yeah, I want to know. But I want how, to know how the tanks get there. How, how does, <laughs> how do you move, like, how do you move yeah, all you of move this tank? armor and aircraft and yeah. tanks and all of this stuff to places that you how know you're going to use, right? Without yeah. the enemy knowing, Hey, they're moving in. Let's get them and let's count what they've got and see what they've got. Like, don't yeah, you kind of I mean, have to be under? You have to be sneak attack. <laughs> That's well, a sneak attack. No, I mean, well, you, you can't. Can you move a tank? I mean, you have to move it by water, right, or by road, not in the air. Can you put it? You can't put a whoa. tank in an airplane. 
at all. Well, <laughs> well you see, here's the thing. Um, you know, when you're making, uh, when you are making an armored assault into any type of territory, there's really no way that you can, there, there is really no way that you can do it secretively. Um, you know, the, uh, the, you know, any type of mechanized force is going to make a lot of noise. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, in the case of Afghanistan, when you had the Soviet army entering that country, it was easy for them to do because they already shared a border with Afghanistan. But mm-hmm. in the case of the American war effort, yeah. what you would have to do is you would have to uh, fly in a battalion of tanks, pretty much one tank at a time. Uh, even the biggest wow. cargo plane oh. in our inventory, the C5A Galaxy, it can only accommodate one M1 Abrams at a time. So you have wow. these, uh, so you have these round trips being made by these cargo planes that are inserting these uh, tanks into Afghanistan, you know, one or two at a time, and wow. that is how you do it if you uh, if you don't have a means to use any type of a land based border. Now, hmm. when you're talking about getting a tank from one continent to another. You, of course, have to use a cargo ship, but there's usually a point of entry that's very close to where you want it to be. Right. Mm. So what about when you talk about... So you can actually put a tank in a plane. Wow. So what about what about also um, when you talk about battleships, right? And I was looking uh, at those battleships, and we got doggies barking. They they want to be part no. of it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. dude, I want to go in there. They, you know. But when you look They're at like, battleships, so are they ever like cargo? Well, like what? I mean, what are they carrying on there? Because I was looking at those. Those are some serious structures. Like I feel right. like you. you I don't even want to be near them, man. Like okay. could take you out. Yeah. <laughs> they look like yeah. barges that could just, you know, kill. Right. Well, cargo ships and troop carrier ships are a little bit different of an animal than a battleship. Um, you know, if you, you if you take a traditional dreadnought battleship, or you, even if you take a modern day cruiser or a destroyer, uh, the really the only thing that it's carrying is carrying its crew, and mm-hmm. it's also carrying all of the necessary ammunition for its armaments. And uh, that's pretty much the only thing that you find aboard any of those ships. You know, of course you will also find a handful of Marines on each one of those ships, you know, as part of what could be a quick reaction force. Um, Mm. But uh, yeah, largely those uh, ships are, are really designed to do one thing. They're designed to either attack the shore or attack an enemy ship and most of what they're carrying on board is going to be dedicated to that end. Wow. It's, a, it, mm. it's, it's interesting. I mean, I know living mm. out in 29 Palms, you'd see like big things, things, tank things going on. I mean, <laughs> it was like a convoy. Things. I mean, it's right. like, you know, you wanted to go it's like, like okay. a convoy. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it is like you're saying it is noise. It is, uh-huh. there is, it's mm. a mass thing and and when you mm-hmm. i even think about like how you know troops get in to fight like even when they were going after uh osama bin laden and stuff you know it's like how did mm-hmm. that talk about sneak attack right they will right. never yeah. get past that saying now it's our saying for everything no, sneak now attack. <laughs> it's a sneak attack thing but <laughs> yeah. you know getting in there and like you know that was some that was some crazy stuff to be able to pull that mm-hmm. off and because mm-hmm. Don't they see you flying in? I mean, even if you're bringing troops in, it's like, how do you hide people coming into a country? You know, and yeah, you really can't. Yeah, 
Yeah. So yeah, it, it's, uh, it's really done. I, I, I think the only way that you do that effectively is if you is really, if you make it a coordinated air and ground attack is if you mm. have a preparatory strike and you soften up targets and you do a little bit of shock and awe, which uh, puts mm. the enemy on the defensive and puts them in a state of panic to where they're trying to process what's happening. Then that buys you some critical time using the element of surprise to get across the border and try and set mm. up positions. Oh. And, you know, and then you, you put the enemy in a state of panic to where they're trying to scramble to get a handle on what is now an invading force inside their country. Wow. Yeah, so you, you attack over here while you're flying ambush over there. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's like when like, you almost oh, got your first here. speeding ticket, Nancy, yeah. she got pulled over and the cop says to her, where's the fire little lady. And she said, it's over there. And he took off. That was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best thing ever. And I just sat there like, I didn't know she if got I off. was allowed to leave or not. And I waited and waited. I'm like, okay, bye. No, dude, you know, get out. He Go. never came back. I was like, cool. <laughs> But don't you think it's funny, it's changed over the years when you think about talking about tanks in the Pacific and those big battleships to what right. we have now. And, you know, we I remember our interview with Gary Slaughter and some of the, the soldiers um, who were on the final mission for the Bay of Pigs in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. I'll never forget mm -hmm. that interview. I should send it to you. It was probably one of the most. I mean, I understand. I can understand. I wish you, I wish we knew you then because it would have been cool to have you on the show. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All of them that um, here it is. Kennedy just made that call like, OK, that's it. Mm -hmm. We're done. Here's these guys coming in. And you think about these Russian guys going through Cuba, you know, and they're sweating inside mm -hmm. the submarine. They're literally dying. But they're like that same yeah. mindset of no matter what we're going through. Here's Gary and his guys out on the ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's all documented. It's in a documentary too. The, the guys come in on the other side and he goes, okay, we're done. I got, you know, Kennedy said this, we're mm -hmm. done. What can we give you as a peace offering? And all they wanted was bread and coffee and cigarettes. Yeah. So he went and goes, oh, I think we've got that in the kitchen. He goes to get it to him. Yeah. And then the photographer came overhead in a plane and dropped the fireworks like these little things, yeah. these lights, so he could light up <laughs> the sky and take the photograph. And yeah. all of a mm. sudden, it almost started Crazy. all over again, over just again. in that moment because of that. I mean, it's just when you think about that's how we were operating to what we are mm. now with lasers and all of this light and mm. digital stuff. I mean, we're going to space now. You know, it's like, where are we going? Do you think with all this space stuff, do you think our next step is the military going to space? Oh, yeah, I'm sure of it. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, we already have military satellites in the air. You know, what yeah. was it a few years back? We had the creation of the brand new Space Force. So, yeah. yeah. Would you You're go? Definitely. On, what's that? Well, you, Would you go? You, Were I a younger you, man? Yes. Oh, come on. You got to do but, it. No, I think you almost get forced into whether you want to go to space or not, not us personally going, but countries in order to, to totally protect themselves have to be where other countries go. So mm. if, if the Soviets are going to go to space and the Chinese, Chinese are going to go to space, we got to go to space, whether so we want to or not. So it's not really about, oh, let's go see 
you know, what's on the moon and let's go check out the other planet. It's self-defense. So actually. 10 I, years from now, I view it. Mike's going to be going. I mean, his next, your next segment with us will be combat diaries, right? We'll <laughs> uh-huh. be doing that. So then 10 years from now, you'll be on our show. And I don't know, we'll be all hologrammed somewhere. Who knows right. what's going to be happening? And you're going to Probably be doing going where space, no one is gone space before. trooper diaries. That's going to be your next <laughs> 10 years oh, from sure. now. I bet you. I bet you. Let's place bets. Written from the lunar base. Yeah, yeah right. Yes. Right. You know, we'll all be floating around. <laughs> Who knows what kind of cars we'll have? I mean, I, I don't I don't, yeah. you know, put anything past us on on what's changing in the world. But uh-huh. always a good conversation. Military yeah, Mike, I always cool. learn things. I know I have some stupid questions in there, but I don't think they're oh, stupid. Never. <laughs> because you got to learn some way, right? But exactly. you, you remember well, all no of these, these, you know, you've got to like, it, it's about putting it in context of what was happening, where and when, right. you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's you just do a really good job. Yeah, you do. You're you a good really teacher, do. you know, and, oh, thank you. and the yeah. books yeah. We're, we're just, you know, each one, it, you just, you get everyone's stories out and make it yeah. war personal and yeah, you personalize it. And I think people mm-hmm. really identify and can connect in a better way and understand yeah. history and what's happening now through reading your books. So very yeah. good stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone, again, uh, keep up with Military Mike at MikeGuardia.com. Again, his latest book is Danger Forward, The Forgotten Wars of General Paul F. Gorman. You can get it on Amazon, but again, really good. MikeGuardia.com. Really good. And oh, of course, you. our shows air daily. Uh, just go to bigblendradio.com and, of course, stay tuned for our first Monday shows with Military Mike. Take care, Mike. Thank you. All righty. Thank you. Thank you.